Well, good morning, everybody. I must say that Gloria and I have enjoyed our few days, um, except the weather. <laughs> but we've enjoyed the fellowship, and we truly are grateful to God to see uh, what the Lord is doing here in Northern Ireland. We're very grateful, we're excited, we're encouraged, and we want to encourage you to keep on in this faith and on this route and to hold on very dearly to this faith and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. What I intend to do is since we have about an hour and quarter minutes is to introduce myself, our family, and what we do. Then I will give you also a little view of where we walk and the position of leadership that the Lord has entrusted into our hands and the area we cover. And I'll give you a little theological base for why we do what we do. So that in a, in, in, in a, in a bird's eye view, you can have little catch of where we are. And then you will have opportunity to ask any questions and I don't care what questions because if I don't know I'll tell you I don't know the answer so feel free to ask questions so first of all like you already have heard Gloria and I were called into ministry differently uh, we met in the seminary um, I graduated in 1982 she came in 1980 and we got married in 1983 and we began ministry together in a city called Zaria. Now Zaria is a university city, it's an academic city. The College of Aviation is there. One of the largest universities in Africa is there. Uh, College of Education is there. Um, military school is there. The Nigerian Army Training School Depot is there. Physical Training School is there. Military Police Training School is there. So largely it's a place and of um, academics. And we walked there for about four years. Then we walked in um, Ikara, which is far north now in the rural areas. And then we were moved from there to Zonkua, down to the southern parts of Kaduna, uh, still in the north. And then from there we were moved again to head up the chaplaincy in the Polytechnic in Kaduna, which is the largest city, the capital city, of the then northern region so it's a very big city with a lot of industries and people of all kinds of people Christians Muslims from all over the country their own businesses and live there as a big city then from there we were moved back to Usasa an ancient Christian city and I'm so proud of Usasa because my father who was one of the earliest Christians converted in Zaria city in the Muslim city with Dr. Miller moved to settle in Wusasa, the land given to them by the Emir and government, the first Christian village in the whole of history in Nigeria. And my father was one of the earliest settlers there as a young boy serving Bishop Bullin and um, Max Warren. And then he went to school there and left school in 1932 and became a school teacher from that time on. So we were there and it was from Wusasa that we were called to be Bishop of Joss in 1992. Now, 
We started ministry in Joss in 1992. Joss was covering the political states of Plateau and Nasarawa states in the central part of Nigeria, in the middle belt area of Nigeria. And we began ministry with about 17 clergy and the two states put together had a total number of about 80 churches, congregations, and we had only 17 clergy. But the Lord blessed our work with Gloria. By 1997, we had planted 197 congregations within the two states. So our archbishop then, Adeti Loye, broke the diocese in two. So Nasarawa state became a diocese of its own. Whereas we inherited about 20 congregations, we were now releasing to them 90 congregations. So we then started ministry in Plateau State, which is Joss, with Joss at its headquarters where we were. Then in eight years, the Lord blessed us with over 300 congregations. So Archbishop Ankinola was moved to break the diocese into three, uh, into four actually, with the present Joss being the fifth. And that is how we have grown. So in the last five years, we were left with 45 congregations. Now we are about 120 in the little area that I now cover in Joss Diocese. But then six years ago, or seven now, I was elected to be Archbishop of Joss Province. Now, Joss Province covers Plateau State, where we are, and then moving up north, Bauchi State, and then further north, Yoba State, and then further northeast, Borno State, then down to Adamawa State, still in the northeast, southern part of the northeast, and then covering the central areas of Taraba State and the whole of Plateau State. And I have 10 bishops that I need to oversee by the grace of God, and we walk together. Now, since I became Archbishop in the last seven years, we've not been able to meet. We've been able to meet perhaps twice only. Um, no, three times in seven years. The reason being that none of our states and dioceses has been so relieved from bombings and killings as to warrant us the opportunity of coming together to meet at any one time. So even when we meet, we are meeting in a hurry. In fact, the Bishop of Yobe lives with me now in Jos. The Church of Nigeria has helped me to rent a flat for him and this is third year of living with me in Jos. His congregations used to be something like 110 or so. He now has less than seven congregations in existence in the whole state. The Bishop of Maiduguri used to have over 200 congregations even across the border into Chad. Now he has only about seven functional 
congregations and when I say so I'm talking of congregations that used to be 200 people 500 people including his cathedral that used to be about 700 people now with only 32 members left many have been killed some have moved away some are displaced are in camps and that is how it is the same is happening in Yola to a lesser degree because it is the northern parts toward the northeast that he's lost all his congregations but it gets worse as it gets to Taraba state in Jalingo area because they have been displaced and many of his churches more than 18 of his congregations completely don't exist anymore and it gets that bad as it moves towards Lantang diocese in the southern parts of Lantang then it comes to Bukuru with Barikiladi and other towns and so on so that is the setting that God has put glory and me to shepherd and lead people in I hardly have a phone call from any of my bishops that is not a lamentation I hardly have any moment that I will text any of the bishops and their clergy that I'm not texting them prayers an encouragement to stay in there and in God's own good ways Joss was the earliest guinea pig of Islamic testing grounds of bombs and killings ours began in 2001 actually it began way back as soon the day I was consecrated Bishop 1992 February 9 that day a few Christians, a few number of Christians, young Christians were going home. Two of them were killed. And people began to say, Ben, you've come from the north with the killings of Christians and you've come to introduce it to us. Because I didn't know. We were busy doing enthronement of bishop and apparently the Muslims had killed one Christian boy and then later on another one. And in 1994, there was a little skirmish. Nine people died. Then the big one came in 2001, September 7th. Now, September 7th, Gloria was away in England. I, was, I left the children just to go and preach in Gombe to come back. We went with my son, Rinji. We went to preach in Gombe. We couldn't come back on that day. Because at 1.30 p.m., a young girl who normally passes to go home was going home. It's a normal route to her house. But on that day, the Muslims decided that she had desecrated their prayers. And on that day alone, over 150 lives were lost. That story never got known in the world because four days later, 9-11 happened. And 9-11 became the news. But 9-11 was a single event. It stopped on that day, the one of Jaws from September 7th till date, till yesterday. People are still being killed and slaughtered. Now, the temptation is to look at it from different ways for the Christians and Muslims as well. The case in Jaws began, first of all, as a political issue. Because it met the groups divided in two camps. So for a particular political post, you'll find the Christians were voting in one pattern and the Muslims were voting in one pattern. 
So whoever won will incur the wrath of the other because they will cry foul. Oh, we are more in number. Underneath that was also some land issues. Because just as a city, I think was mostly, it, it, it became a town proper, largely by recognition of Europeans. They were the miners. They came to mine. And they had an interest. But we were fortunate because those early European settlers, they were businessmen but committed Christians. They were interested in justice. The archives of the history of Jews showed that they applied to the resident. And the resident gave them portions of land. And they chose to acquire these lands from the indigenous peoples. And the indigenous peoples had their titles as owners of the land. Now, within that agreement also came in traders, mostly Muslims and some others from the south, who also bought lands and settled. But as is customary with the Muslim areas, wherever they settle, they will have a common leader, one who led them in prayers and one who also is a community leader. And so because they had a leader of prayer and a community leader, they arrogated to themselves the leadership of the city as well. But the locals said, no, you cannot be leader of the city because we sold lands to you. We are owners of the land. Now, that tension was building up in the early 80s. Because in the early 80s, there was a move essentially theologically fed by a man called Ahmad Didad from South Africa. And he, his theology was to the intent that the time for the leadership of Islam to challenge Christianity in the whole world had come because he was proving that the Christianity of the present generation is a false religion. And he wrote so many books and contented on videos and they sold like wildfire in northern Nigeria. So in northern Nigeria, therefore, there was um, a, a revival of the jihad of 1804 by Uthman Damfodio. And that spirit and the theology was coming quite strong. And early enough to begin to show to Christians that they do not belong in the north. Now, that also had a political intention, but it had a religious theology behind it. So that by 1987, what was happening in the north of Nigeria, that climaxed into the burning of churches all over in Zaria and Kaduna, it soon became a continuous thing in the north that snowballed by 1990s into Jaws. Now, while it is happening in the north, you must understand that the political world of the west has no sympathy for Christianity. 
Now, we knew this way back in the 80s because whenever, and, and let, me, let me back up a little to tell you this. In 1987, I was the leader of the entire Christian community in Zaria. Christians, Catholics, they elected me to be their leader. And the day that the Muslims came and bombed my house, thinking I was in to kill me, and destroyed my church, and then destroyed all the 110 churches and businesses, I wrote a letter that was dispatched to every Christian home throughout the city of Zaria. Just a couple of sentences. And I told them what the Lord told me to tell Christians. Do not retaliate. Stand still and watch what the Lord will do. Now that letter is documented. Um, the police had it. The government had it. And Christians watched. Their house burnt. Their properties destroyed. Only about three Christians were, no, six in total were killed in that event. And we did nothing. It shocked the government. It shocked the Muslims. But the world, the political world of the West, did not take notice of that. They never mentioned it. And rather turned around, BBC turned around and said, it is the um, insensitive evangelistic, over-enthusiastic evangelism of the Christians in the north that has caused, they justified the burning of the churches and the killing of some of the Christians. That gave a good baptism to Islam because then they did, they grew worse. And each time the number of Christians being killed increased in tally of numbers. So by the time this, this came to Jaws, now here is what Jaws looks like. The city itself, the whole state is about 3.9 million people. And it is largely non-Muslim. The Muslim would probably be about 10 to 15% of the population. Now they will not agree with me saying that, but this is the truth. And they would say that even in Plateau State, they are about 40% or 60%. They, they argue that they are that. But the truth is that they are less than 20%. Now, the Christians or the non-Muslims in Plateau State, in Jaws, were beginning to be nervous by this time. And their reaction was natural. They began to see Muslims as people you couldn't trust anymore. But little by little, it was growing to the point where Muslims were seeing the Christians as the enemies of their progress. And little by little, the feeling became mutual. And the summary of it all is that it has become very difficult now, particularly in just where I am, and in the northeast, very, very difficult for a majority of the people not to see one another as enemies. It's very difficult.
because as time went on some of the owners of the lands would tell me they say bishop pastor go and defend your church we will defend our land and they fought back they fought back it was ugly but the good news is this the good side of it is this that all of the non-muslim communities will not start an attack on the muslims they would always rise to defend themselves or in retaliation unfortunately unfortunately neither of the attacks nor retaliation is a good thing both are ugly in the northeast as you move towards bauchi where the christians are minority and all of the rest of the areas that i've told you the non-muslim communities are simply at slaughter they can't even defend themselves not to talk of retaliating they cannot they simply are in those areas as meat for slaughter what increased and heightened the tension was the introduction of boko haram now boko haram as it now has become known has always been in existence right from the 80s and we have always known that there is a military wing in training but nobody would listen to us because you must understand that i was born in the north i live with them we grew together some of these boys i know them they know me we went to school together some of them were my juniors in primary school so we know them we communicate the current leaders of some of these things and we've never been enemies they came to our mission schools we ate together we shared together what happened and what happened is simply where i stand that any decision not made for jesus is open to anything any decision not made for jesus is available for satan to use so from the 80s there was a military wing in the formation particularly in zaria and kano but little by little there were splinter groups of the same military wing that felt somewhere too mild and also broke off by the time of the 90s they had become wealthy and they became like a social group caring for one another but underneath was a complete intolerance for anything that was not pure islam and that includes nominal islam so no one was safe in their theology but the first casualty was to be non-muslims 
So the attacks in Jaws were targeted clean and clear against the church. Then against nominal Muslims. And another group that grew out of that, that we now know as Boko Haram, is an offshoot of all of these uh, amoebic breaking groups. One would grow and say, no, you are too mild, you are compromising, and they will rise against this and then turn against one another until they are now well-armed and very powerful and strong that they can rout out even army barracks. They've received trainings in Somalia, in the Maghreb, and they come back with arms and with technology of how to make bombs and kill. So in the eyes of the average Christian, therefore, he sees a Muslim and doesn't know whether it's Boko Haram or not. As far as he's concerned, this man is an enemy, he's going to kill me. Do you blame them? Now, I've risen from our ministry, Gloria and me, to where we are now serving. This is where we are. What, how do we respond? There are no easy answers, I must tell you. There are none. I have met with some of the people who used to be members of congregations, of churches, who have told me off and they have abandoned the church. They regard the church as too weak, defenseless, and incapable of helping them in their difficulties. And they form their own vigilante groups to defend their land and to defend their, their lives. That is the other sad aspect. Those who have heeded the call of Christ to do nothing. They are at the worst receiving end. A family of six last week, they went to the farm. Just a small farm, subsistence farming, with their hoe and cutlass. The entire family was killed. Another family three weeks ago in their home, sleeping. Wife, husband, children, and I think two members of the family traveled. They were the only ones who survived. Those were massacred in their home. And those who have chosen the faith to accept, not to fight back, get shot as they run away get slaughtered when they are caught. There are no easy answers. But I give you where I stand and how I trust God is helping me to lead the church. The first thing is, if I get killed, as perhaps may happen, I want to believe that my time is up. 
that is that's what I believe because somehow or other one day I'm going to die. But I don't know by what means. And I must say that several attempts on my life, God has given me an escape. I'm still alive, so I'm grateful. It got to the point that I believe that I probably will not die violently. I probably will die in my sleep peacefully. Because at least I've escaped quite a few serious attacks. But if there is this continuous chaos, there will be no opportunity also for me to preach the gospel as I want to, to show it as I need to. And the worst of it is, if I engage in killing the Muslims, to whom will I preach? I would have killed the very person that I want to show the love of God. So, the, the, the attacks from a Christian point of view doesn't give me an opportunity to show the love of Jesus. On the other hand, to stand and watch somebody wanting to slaughter me also, I would have been dead. I can't preach anymore. I'm not left with any easy choice in following Jesus. But, but, I am confident evil will not last forever. People will die as I have come to accept. But we have a gospel to preach. And it's the gospel of love. Even for people we perceive as enemies. It's a gospel worth living for. It's a gospel worth dying for. I believe that with all my heart. So for every day that I live, if I have the opportunity of life, I want to show the love of Jesus to anybody. Now that takes me to the last part of the, before you ask your questions. Like I said, I'm based on theology. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 23 to 26, Jesus calls his disciples and he says to them, If anyone would follow me, would come after me. If anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, I believe that the disciples at that time did not quite assimilate the idea of the cross. But when he finally was nailed to the cross, they realized what it was. In other words, in accepting to be a Christian, therefore, in accepting Jesus into my life, although I didn't quite understand it as a young believer, but now I have accepted it, I know it. It means that in this life, in accepting Jesus, what happened to Jesus might happen to me, and I accept it. So I accept also the love of Jesus flowing in my heart to the extent that even if you kill me now, the only thing you will find when you dissect open my heart is to find the love of Jesus. But it also has to do 
with perhaps for some people death I mean we thank God Maud escaped with her life but some people died some will come alive some will die so at the heart of what I teach my children at the heart of what I teach the church and what the heart of what I believe completely is that when we accept Jesus we also accept death immediately from the time we accept Jesus we also accept the fact that we will die for accepting Jesus not everybody will accept it at the same time but there is no option to this truth there is none and the reason why we have to accept Jesus and accept that we will die in the love of Jesus is because Jesus died but hallelujah Jesus rose so even if you die as a believer of Christ you have another life to live with Jesus and you live that eternally and that is what moves me to look out to show the love of Jesus to people to not only preach it but to live it and touch their lives so the Nigerian experience as I teach it and it is difficult for people to accept but I will not change because it is the only truth I know I will not change you must understand that the Muslim is a human being. Actually, anybody without Christ, in my own view, I don't say it openly, but I'm assuming here that we are committed Christians and that you'll understand what I'm saying. When I see anybody who has not accepted Jesus at all, it makes no difference to me whether it's a Muslim, a pagan, a Buddhist, or anything. They are the same. So I don't single out Muslims because they are Muslims and treat them differently. No. They are human beings like me. They go to the toilet. They cry. They go to the hospital. They fall sick. They look for help. They are human beings. But I think the training in the West, which has which is the most popular all over the world, the way we write it, is the way we treat Muslims, treat Muslims. They are human beings, my friends. There's nothing about being a Muslim. There's nothing. They are human beings. They respond to love. They understand when you love them, when you like them. Last year, they had a massive, huge youth conference in Jaws. And guess what? I was the speaker, guest speaker. In fact, they would not call it the specifically called me and in order that they would convince me they hired a university hall and asked me to come and be their speaker there and I was and I gave them the details of how to fall in love with Jesus and if they opened their heart they, they were clapping they, 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 were, they were just shouting and clapping they were excited in the same year last year when they were breaking their fast, the chief imam invited me to be their guest speaker at the breaking of the fast. And I spoke in the mosque. See, they are human beings, my friends. They understand and they know when you love them. 
when you feel for them, when you sympathize for them. My daughter in the hospital became, they knew her. So they would call her. They said, is she on duty? They want to come. And she cares for them. She touches their lives. I'm saying this so that you don't begin to think, as I see now is happening, particularly in the West. When somebody says he's a Muslim, we treat him differently. And we elevate them so high. And I have told them in, in London and I've told them in America that if I were not a Christian and I was coming to the West, I would be a Muslim because the respect that they give to Muslims is very good. Is very good. And at the same time, Christians coming from Africa and other parts of the world don't get half the respect and the, 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 the luxury that they give to Muslims. In fact, I have a few of the families in Jaws who are lamenting because their children in America had become Muslims. And I've spoken with some of them. You know what they told me? One of them told me. He said, they've been to church. Nobody cares about them. They are hungry in school. Nobody asks them anything. They just go to church. Everybody says, hi, hi, and they go away. But the Muslims don't do that. The Muslims will ask you, where are you from? Oh, come. They will give you money. They will give you food. They will help you. So he became a Muslim. You see, the love of Jesus is not just about talk. It's also about touch and feel and being real with people. And when you do that, not only Muslims, even pagans will follow Jesus. So that is the base of our theology. Now, let me wrap it up so that you can now ask your questions. We're looking at unconditional love. And this morning, Brother Ian just nailed it for me. That it is not so much as we going to change the world as God also changing us. There's a huge, huge work for us as Christians to rethink and search again from the Bible and be sure of what we know, what we believe and live it. There is a need for a big change in the heart and mind of Christians today. Beginning with me. We've got to accept. The love of Jesus in such a way that whatever. Is going to blur. That love or create impediments. Or create conditions for it. We must remove it so that our heart is full of love for God's humanity. Whether they be Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, just the love for people. Unconditionally. There needs a serious change in our hearts. Then, if you, like me, happens to be working in northern Nigeria and the predominant people there are Muslims, 
you will not see them because they are Muslims. You see them as human beings created by God in need of the love of God. And you will do everything to introduce the love of Jesus to them. When Gloria and I were walking in Ikara, in the rural areas that were predominantly Muslim, by the time we left, the testimony is there. Villages that were Muslims, villages literally converted and became Christians. Today, there is a diocese in that place. We walked there. We saw people who were, we started a school for them. We started clinics for them. They responded to the love of God. Our children were there. We lived with them. And whereas when we began ministry, there were just about 30 congregations. When we left, there was more than 70 congregations. They had become Christian. We saw what early white missionaries used to see. We designed the churches, we built the churches, we built wells, we built houses, we, we taught them how to marry. I did the first weddings, there was no weddings. I did it for them to see. It was fantastic. People will always respond to the love of God unconditionally if you give it. And that's the context I'm serving in the north of Nigeria. And that's what I teach. And I try to tell people. Don't worry about their Muslims. Yes they are Muslims. But show them love first. And if you find Christians. Show them love also. The same love. Unconditionally. Whether they be black or white or yellow. Chinese, Indian. Whatever. Show love. And people will always respond to the love of God. Now. Do you have any questions or comments? That is the second role of my life and ministry. Because we grew up to find bishops and pastors concerning themselves only in the church. But as a young priest, I have found out that my life does not end only in the church. I had to be involved with the society, with the community. And very early, I found out that Nigeria was going to go democratic in the, early, in the early 80s. So I began to encourage the little church where I was pastor at in St. Andrew's Church. Arthur Park used to be there. Um, in fact, I inherited his chair. <laughs> in the little church there, it was a very influential church. It was a colonial church. And everybody who was who was who in Zaria was their commandant, NMS. Um, colonels, brigadiers, chief of this, head of that, professors. I began to encourage them to go into politics. Because that is where the policies are made. So I got used to that and I became involved in social affairs and in community affairs. In fact, Gloria is more involved in the community affairs than I am. Because Gloria goes from house to house of women and villages and influential people, all Muslim, Christian, she brings them to the house, all of them. And in Joss, the Muslim women and the Christian women voted Gloria to be their leader in the peace movement. So she was the chairperson of the peace of the, end, the whole of Plateau State. And the Christians and Muslims trusted her. 
So community involvement has brought me to the point where we found something else to answer your question. And what we found out was that the laws of Nigeria since the colonial days have not been brought up to date. And the police system since the colonial days have also not been brought up to date. The military that fought the civil war seems to only know how to fight a civil war in a present Nigeria. So the crisis in the north affecting particularly Christians has brought out all of this into the fore. But the second thing that plays against it is this. That in order to bring the laws up to date, the lawmakers are politicians. So if the majority of the lawmakers are politicians, they will make the laws to suit Islam. Like we saw immediately in 1998. By 1999-2001, nearly all the states in northern Nigeria had declared Sharia for all of their states. You see, because they got into power and they voted for it and so it became. So even if you set up a judiciary system or a police system, it had to bow to Sharia. Now that means that the Christians in those areas just don't have a choice for a proper civil law system. So what I'm doing now is encouraging Christians to get into politics, to get involved, to look at the laws, to read them, to participate at federal, at state and local levels. So what are the federal government doing? What are the police? That is exactly what they are doing. They are just looking at people because the laws cannot do anything. I give you one horrible example. Number one. There is not a single Fulani who has been arrested for killing a Christian. Not one yet. The Fulani are cattle herdsmen. And they run their cattle into people's farms. And the cattle would eat their cabbages, their potatoes, their tomatoes. And when the owners of the farms rise up to talk, the Fulani will kill the farm owners. They don't get arrested. That is one side. Now the other side is this. Cattle thieves, cattle rustlers, they abound everywhere in the world. And they are not necessarily Christian nor Muslim. In fact, they are a combination of the two. Because if the non-Muslims steal cows, they sell them to the Muslim cattle dealers who take them down south immediately. They own the trailers and they travel with it. But if a Christian or a non-Muslim steals a cow, the Fulani will rise and kill the entire village from where the cattle thief comes from. And the police will even rise to arrest any who are alive in that village as cattle rustlers. The injustice is massive. But so far, we now know that 
when we had a military officer who was a very just man, it turns out he's a committed Christian, and he would arrest the cattle rustlers. And it turns out that he, they were able to arrest the cattle rustlers, some of them non-Muslim, some of them Muslim, some of them Fulani even. But up to now, if a non-Muslim rises to defend himself against a Fulani, he'll be arrested. But if a Fulani kills a non-Muslim, never arrested. Not one yet. So our laws are still weak and unjust. And when somebody asked me, he said, now that you have a Muslim president, what will happen? I said, what has been happening will happen even more. Because when it was good luck, the laws were very weak. He was a Christian or at least a church-going person. And now that we have a Muslim, we've had more bombs in three months than we had in one year last year. So what I will advise is for you to continue to pray for Nigeria as a people. And especially that the Christian politicians will rise and cry out for justice. And by the way, justice is good for everybody. Not just for Christians or Muslims. It's good for everybody. And if any people love justice the more... It is Islam. They always are crying for justice. Yeah, there are Muslim groups that rise up against the radicals, but they do so at a cost also. The former emir of Kano had declared the radical Islam Boko Haram uh, persona non grata in Kano state, and he was bombed. He escaped narrowly, but the people around him all were killed. The current emir also followed in the same steps and they bombed his mosque. So the radical groups are also as intolerant against Muslims who sympathize with Christians. And that is what has created the complexity right now within the nation. Okay, this is God revealing himself to... Muslims and whether that is happening in Nigeria. What is happening in Nigeria is a movement that is unstoppable. Um, the, the Muslims in Nigeria, in the movement that I happen to know of, are asking questions from the Quran. And are turning to Christ from the Quran. They had a huge movement in the northeast. I won't say where. Because they were disbanded. Many of them were killed, slaughtered. But many of them also spread to other nations of West Africa. And are carrying on with the evangelistic work. And um, I'm in touch with some of them. And they are doing so at the cost of their lives they are, they are they are finding jesus from the quran but yes i have read of many muslims um in especially in saudi arabia in yemen in nepal um and um in abu dhabi who have encountered jesus through dreams and visions but in West Africa, what I'm seeing in Nigeria um, is not so much of dreams. It is an encounter. I listened to a tape. Well, we listened to a tape. We found a tape with my wife. It was on sale. 
and we have we met up with the young man eventually we don't know where he is now but he apparently was one of the leaders of the crack group from the muslim mosque in kaduna who were hired to kill me in zaria in 1987 and for some reason he went to Jaws for something else and he was troubled at night and met with a pastor who led him to Christ and he confessed this story and even mentioned the names of some members of his group and, and became a Christian he became an evangelist a freelance evangelist um, supported by I think by Equa Church or something like that so I, I met him and he told me the people behind our killing. But you see, I, I didn't quite want to know the names. And I still don't know their names. The same for the second time. The same for the third time. The police wanted to tell me, you know, they think they have the people. They know the people. And I said, no, I don't want to know. Because I don't even want to start thinking any human being is my enemy when they were plotting and planning it god saw them god knows them to their phone numbers and home address but secondly i know that on the day of the lord all things will be made known so i don't want to know i have perhaps eaten with those who think they are my enemies i've gone to their homes i don't know and i don't care as long as god is in charge i'm okay This is a tough question. And that is that the church in the West is declining because there is no persecution. I don't agree with that. Um, because I have prayed to the Lord to take away the persecution, we will still grow. Because if there is no persecution, then I will have the chance to build more schools, to do the things that I want to do in the things that God wants me to do in all the place. But the persecution is hindering that. And the persecution is creating conditions that inhibits our showing unconditional love. What I will pray is that God will wake up the churches that are sleeping around the world. That will be my prayer. But not to ask. Persecution, if you see it, you wouldn't like it, my brother. No, it's not funny. It's not funny. There was a time I lost weight. I grew so thin. I was eating food. I was well. Nothing was wrong with me. But every time I hear a gunshot, I know that the widow is waiting for me. An orphan is waiting for me. So I, I just was simply sick. And for nearly two weeks, I was crying and begging God. Persecution is not funny, my friends. So I don't pray for it, um, not in the Western church, nor anywhere. But because that is the nature of our call, when it comes, let us brace up to accept it and to pull through it. But no persecutor is an enemy. The persecutor is not an enemy. Jesus said, forgive them, Lord, for they do not know what they are doing. Yes, sir. The question is about the arms supplies to the Islamic groups, Boko Haram, and like the cases in Darfur and Sudan and all that.
the political world is a dangerous world. We know where these arms are coming from. And we have cried out loud, but the world is not listening. And I think the world will not listen. Our only hope is in God. And we continue to pray. But if there are some of you in politics, please speak to the governments in the West. They know the root where these arms come from. And they know who is selling it to who. And they know the suppliers. They know the politicians in our parliament. They know. They cannot deny it. They cannot deny it. Some of them come from countries next door. Some from, they are from, largely from Europe. Largely, we know. I mean, we pick some of the bullet shells and we know where they're manufactured from and how they came. They asked me this before and I told them the roots. There are at least three roots. And when they found out that we know, they decided to bring them via the ship. Brought them by sea. And I know that at least, I mean, three years ago, an aircraft, Saudi Arabian cargo aircraft, landed in Lagos with armaments. We never heard about it again. Saudi Arabia is very powerful. Where did the arms go? A whole cargo ship laden with weapons and drugs from Iran burst in Lagos, was arrested. We never heard of it. An aircraft with 18 cartons of armament from Ukraine landed in Kano. And we civilians and ordinary people, we know these things. We scream, we say it. Nobody hears us. The whole of the world just kept quiet. As long as it is going to persecute Christians, nobody talks about it. So we know that. I mean, in the Sudan case, we knew long ago when... Anyway. <laughs> we had indicted Canada, France, and Britain. They know. We know it long ago. That's why we want Christians in politics. Please. It's, it's dirty, yes, but you must get in there. Otherwise, the number of orphans and widows will increase in the church. And we don't have enough resources to care for them. That's the other side. If there be no further questions, I will wrap it up and pray. So that we go. I don't want us to feel discouraged because I'm not. I'm not. I'm still alive. I'm still alive. And um, Gloria is still alive. And we are, believe me, it's an exciting ministry because it's a ministry from within the church refining and defining the theology of the church and putting it across to Christians and then also affecting the society that is non Christian and putting it across to non Christians. To see who Jesus is. It's a difficult business. But it is worth doing. So right now where are we?
we're still building schools as the Lord will open doors for us. We're still in the business of looking after children. Um, and some of those children come from Muslim homes. Some of our children. And we're still looking after everybody. And I'm still engaged in community building, in community and society involvement. And Gloria is. And we love people because God loves the whole world. So let us love everybody. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you very much. Because this one thing we know, and we are sure of it, that Jesus died, but Jesus rose again. And that Jesus is alive and reigning forevermore. No matter how much the church gets persecuted, we know the end of it. That Lord, you are the Lord. And that your church will march on. And the gates of hell can never, will never ever prevail against it. So we ask that you bless us with courage. And that your Holy Spirit will come upon us now. To awaken our faith to be vibrant and living and active. That we, your children, will be instruments of changing the society for the good of everybody. And demonstrating your love to the world that does not want to hear of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet we will penetrate this world with your love unconditionally to everybody and everywhere. Oh God, answer this prayer for we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.